This episode of New Politics was released on the 4th of March, 2023, and produced on the land of the Wangal and Wajuk people. Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, the politics of superannuation and economic reform, a media roundtable meeting but not everyone is invited, the robo-debt royal commission continues, and one year after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, superannuation advisor to the Liberal Party. And if you'd like to support New Politics, you can support us through a Patreon subscription, but whether it's a subscription or whether you just want to listen in, read our material online or buy a T-shirt or buy a book, it's all available at newpolitics.com.au and all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. Superannuation is quite a boring topic of conversation at the best of times, but everyone in politics is very excited about it at the moment. The government can see that it can save a substantial amount of money by closing off a loophole and has introduced a higher level of tax for superannuation accounts holding over $3 million. And the opposition can see an opportunity to claim that the Prime Minister has broken an election promise. The changes that Labor is planning to implement won't come into effect until after the next election, but it's only going to affect around 80,000 people or around 0.5% of all superannuation accounts, so it doesn't seem like it's such a big deal. But the Liberal Party wants to make it seem like everyone is going to be affected by this. The world as we know it is going to come to an end, and it's the worst thing that's ever happened in human history. The Liberal Party does have this great skill in being able to magnify these small issues into large-scale calamities, and there have been some comparisons made with the franking credits campaign from 2019, where they made everyone believe that they were going to lose their franking credits, even for those people that didn't own shares. But it's hard to mount these types of scare campaigns when you're in opposition, and the Labor government should probably cut these superannuation benefits even further. Superannuation is complicated, and getting this type of tax reform right is crucial. There's going to be a line in which people who maybe shouldn't be affected will be affected, and where people who maybe should be affected won't be affected. Now, the vast majority of people who are going to be affected are people who can afford it. The top superannuation account in Australia is valued at $544 million. Obviously, that money has been put in there to avoid tax because you don't want that kind of money tied up to you 65. I don't know whose it is. I don't need to know whose it is. These privacy laws are in for a reason. The point is, though, that to tax the income off that, which would be substantial, would still leave you with an incredibly large amount of money. So to put in a policy that really means that some people might have to rearrange their financial affairs slightly to save on some tax or to pay a little bit more tax than they're currently paying, isn't that bad a thing. Now, I do worry about the poor innocent who happens to fall on the wrong side of a threshold. But even then, I can hear some of you saying, but if they can afford it, they can afford it, which is fair enough. 
and the opposition when they were in government ran an extremely effective fear campaign playing on people's ignorance claiming that they're going to lose all this money because franking credits will be affected. And people who had never bought a share in their life were worried that they were going to lose their franking credits. And there were reports of people turning up to Centrelink asking for their franking credits, which for the people behind the desk must have been an incredibly frustrating experience. (laughs) But we can see what the Liberal Party leadership is trying to do here. And it seems like they are trying to replicate what they did with their shares franking credits campaign against Labor's election policy back in 2019. And that was Mm. an issue that they manipulated effectively and managed to convince a lot of people that they were going to lose out. But I think there's still two major differences here. The Liberal Party is in opposition now, and these sort of campaigns, as I mentioned before, they are less effective from opposition. And what Labor is proposing now, and that's taxing people with $3 million in their superannuation accounts at a higher level, that's actually quite a simple political message to sell. $3 million in your superannuation account, well, to many people, that is a lot of money. Well, for, it is a lot of money anyway, but most people will never earn $3 million in their entire working lifetime. So I think this is a very easy message to sell. It makes a lot of sense on equity grounds. Generally, this is a good reform and claws back money from people who can easily afford it. My main issue is that it doesn't actually go far enough. And we can see that the Labor government is probably still a bit spooked by how easily these types of issues can be magnified into something that they're not. And pushing this reform over to 2025 makes it a little bit less contentious. It should be coming into effect in 2024. But maybe all of this is part of Anthony Albanese's cautious approach to government, which is what he promised during the last federal election campaign. But he should actually be going in a lot harder. There's going to be very few people who can't afford it, who will be caught innocently. I I should also say that. And $3 million to me seems like a pretty fair amount to start these cuts. Most advisors suggest you should have somewhere between 800 and a million, which very few people are going to get because the policy of the last 10 years or so, where we've moved to a gig economy, where we've moved to more contractors, where we've moved to more jobs like Uber and Uber Eats and the casualization of the workforce, there's a lot less money going into superannuation. And the the compulsory superannuation was brought in to try and alleviate the financial pressure that a large number of retirees starting about five years ago and continuing through for about another five years in the the baby boomer generation retiring, the strain it was going to put onto the, the pension system. So encouraging people who could afford it to have their own private pensions wasn't awful policy. For some reason, the Liberal Party, the party of individualism, the party of smaller government, the party of encouraging people to not rely on welfare, hated it, probably because it put up a lot of wages by 10% or 9%, even though with tax deductions and the reduction of your income, a lot of that money was essentially being paid by the taxpayer anyway. The Liberal Party and some of its followers don't seem to have a terribly nuanced view of how this stuff works. And that's either they're really not fit for office or they're really disingenuous. Well, why not both? But of course, when you get politicians involved, they will behave politically. And that's exactly what the Liberal Party is doing here. And they've engaged in a little bit of political marketing here. It's not honey, it's not funny, and it's your money. That all rhymes, so that's fantastic. But here's the Deputy Leader of the Liberal Party, Susan Lay, trying to get some political mileage out of it. 
The government said before the election that they had no intention of changing superannuation. They floated the idea earlier this week. Now they seem to be making jokes about it, calling it a honeypot to be raided for the things they want to spend it on. I mean, I don't know. No one can explain to me in the Labor Party what this actually is. And this is the problem. Talking about it as if it's honey to be raided, shared around. Well, it's not honey. It's not funny. And again, it's this process of trying to make all of this seem unfair and unreasonable and make it seem like everyone is being affected by this change to superannuation regulations and make it seem like it's the biggest broken promise ever. But to make an effective political point, first of all, it's got to be on something that's believable. And the person who's trying to communicate that message has to be very effective. And Susan Lay is not a very effective political communicator. She's actually quite a poor performer. And you referred to this before, David. The other point is that the Liberal Party, they've always opposed compulsory superannuation. They, they opposed the introduction of compulsory superannuation in 1992. They've always railed against industry super funds, claiming that it's all controlled by the Labor Party people and socialists, even though industry super funds have consistently outperformed retail super funds for the past 30 years. They also allowed people to access $20,000 of their own superannuation funds during the early part of the COVID pandemic rather than getting the government to pay for that support. They also had that lame-brained idea that came in from Tim Wilson of accessing super to purchase houses and that would have ruined both the superannuation and the housing markets at the same time. So they've always had this antipathy towards superannuation but now that they see a political opportunity they're trying to promote themselves as the saviour of the superannuation system when historically they've been quite the opposite. They're the saviour of the superannuation system for people who want to use superannuation for something other than it was designed for. And what it was designed for, of course, is to give you a passive income in your retirement. And whether you do that in conjunction with a pension or by itself is up to the way that you've been able to manage your finances and how much money you've earned. And there's a bit of luck and there's a bit of skill and it doesn't really matter as long as it's been managed well and as long as you're using it for the right purpose, it doesn't really matter. But yet when you get over a certain limit, it becomes less of a retirement plan and more of a tax evasion plan. And the government is right to want to close it. Scott Morrison, I can't believe I'm saying this, but it's, he was right to want to close it. That he lacked the political will, skills or ability to do so is a whole other story. But it's the type of thing that Treasury looks at and says, well, this is money that we could be getting. And that's not that harmful. At the size it is, people will still have plenty to live on. People will still have a comfortable retirement. The Liberal Party are being helped by a media that clearly doesn't want any changes to the tax system regarding superannuation because we're not getting a lot of the government's clear and articulate arguments on in the media, but we are getting a lot of the frenetic Suzanne Lay, for example, and the ethically questionable Angus Taylor, whereas we're not getting a lot of Jim Chalmers. And when we do, the questions are very hostile. He's not allowed to articulate his position before he's interrupted. It's clear that there are senior people in the Australian media who will be affected by this tax and they're doing their very best to stop it happening. Oh, well, I think the other point is that we're not hearing enough of the Liberal Party backbenchers, Russell Broadbent and Bridget Archer, and they've got a different take to what their leadership group is saying. And they've been saying that they support the government in at least having a discussion about these reforms and something that's in the national interest. And that's exactly what we expect from our 
elected representatives, and whether they're in government or in opposition, we expect them to behave and discuss all of these matters in the national interest. Otherwise, what's the point of being there? And this is the opposite to what the shadow treasurer, Angus Taylor, has been saying, where he said that the coalition will oppose and fight any changes. They'll fight tooth and nail over this. And this is the same nihilism that used to come in from Tony Abbott when he was the leader of the Liberal Party. Oppose everything, say no to everything, attack everything coming from the Labor government, even opposing the things that you previously supported during your time in government. So we can see that the opposition is using... Tony Abbott's instruction manual in this process and sure it did work for Tony Abbott but if you want to use the same tactics as Tony Abbott well you need someone like Tony Abbott for this to be a successful political tactic otherwise it just looks lame it looks opportunistic and idiotic now I'm not saying that this was a good approach by Tony Abbott I'm just pointing out that it worked for him politically and got the Liberal National Coalition back into office but it's like this empty nothingness from the coalition oppose for the sake of opposing attack just for the sake of attacking and the liberal party mp who's trying to be constructive in this debate and trying to act in the national interest that's bridget archer she's a member for bass in tasmania senior liberals in tasmania have threatened to dump her before the next election and withdraw pre-selection for her and david we've said this before on new politics this is how the mafia behaves speak up in the liberal party and you get taken down try to act in the national interest and not in the interest of the liberal party well they don't want you to act in the national interest they want you to act in the interest of the liberal party alone and they just want to keep going down in this downward spiral. And if you keep going down too far, you're just never going to get back up again. The other thing, Tony Abbott was only successful for a very brief time. One of the shortest serving prime ministers dumped before he got his prime ministerial pension. And at the end of it, two prime ministers later, no legacy. It's hard to look at what the Abbott government brought except chaos and anarchy, which is true of really the Turnbull government and the Morrison government, that they lasted longer was more through luck than through any good management or even much good policy. There were a couple of things that they did that was okay. Same-sex marriage, which was forced upon them and they tried to derail, and maybe one or two other things. It's to the point where we could quote the axiom attributed to Einstein, but insanity is trying the same thing again and again and again and expecting a different result. Any political strategist would look at the last nine years and think, yes, that didn't work. We got nothing done. We changed Australia in negative ways through negative means. And everything that we did can be easily reversed. But they were in government for nine years. Maybe that's the important factor for them. That's it. But at the end of the time... The Liberal government was in for 23 years at one point, from 1949 through to 1972. And at the end of that, you could point to not enough, really, but certainly eight or ten things that you could argue improved Australia. Expansion of universities, expansion of schooling, expansion of Australian foreign relations in the Asia-Pacific. I won't go through the rest of them because I'm going to forget something. (laughs) But even if you didn't agree with the government, you could say, yes, they did this. And it was a positive change even if we didn't like it. Same with the Hawke-Keating government. At the end of it, you could point to the various economic reforms they made, the various cultural reforms they made. And I'm avoiding shorter-term governments like the Whitlam government. But at the end of nine years, you should be able to point to a few things. And of course, not everything can last, not everything made to last, even some of the positive changes. 
at the end of the Howard government, there were things that had changed where you could point and say that was a substantial change. Again, good or bad, there was a mix. Most on the left agreed with the gun reform laws of the Howard government. Nearly everyone agrees that they were a positive thing for Australia. Other things, maybe not, but at least there was a change you could point to and say, yes, it was different before and it's come through and the legacy is this. You can't do that with the last nine years. It's just so little as to be a waste of time. And if the aim was to be in power, then surely party strategists have got to say, then why are we in power? If we're not going to make a chapter in a history book, why are we here? If we're not going to make Australia better, what are we doing here? And that's where the Liberal Party is at at the moment. Oh, sometimes a chapter in a book might sure. only be a couple of pages long. So that's the other thing that they have to consider. But I guess this is also providing some pointers for future reform, not just on economic matters, but absolutely everything. These changes to superannuation and all it is is increasing the tax over this amount of $3 million from 15% up to 30%. So it's still under the higher level tax threshold. It only affects Mm. 80,000 people. And it's something that will be introduced in 2025 after the next election. And this is such a tiny reform But all we get is howls of protest from an opportunist opposition and propped up by the media. Here's a small interaction between David Koch from Seven Media and the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers. Let's go through the others because you're not being trusted at the moment. This is, you're starting to raid our our superannuation. What's next? Can you guarantee no change ever to the capital gains tax exemption on the family home? Well, first of all, as you would understand, Koshi, we put out yesterday a whole bunch of numbers about all of the tax breaks in the system. And when we did that, we said that's not a policy statement, it's not a statement of intent, it's just a Treasury summary and analysis of all of those tax breaks. And by announcing our intentions on superannuation yesterday, uh, I think that demonstrated our priorities when it comes to these tax concessions. We haven't been contemplating changes uh, to that one that you identified, uh, but we have not contemplating. The, in, okay, that's sort of a weasel word. Can you guarantee... Well, not, not intentionally, Koshi. I'm trying to be upfront with your viewers can you, to tell okay, them. Okay, so just say, yes, that you absolutely guarantee no change ever to the capital gains tax exemption on our family home. You can just say yes, I guarantee well, that. Well I, could, well, I can say to your viewers that we haven't been focused on it, we haven't been working on it, it's not something that we've been just contemplating. Just say yes. Well, I can't commit future governments uh, to changes or otherwise. What we've done with this superannuation change, which I think people do recognise, is put it the other side of an election so that we can take it to the people. Okay, under your reign as Treasurer, you will never change the capital gains tax exemption on the family home. Well, it's not my intention. It's not something I've been thinking about, working up, contemplating. Just say guarantee. Well, we don't know what the situation might look like in 10 or 15 years' time under other governments, Koshi. No, 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 under yours, I said. You, personally. Well, I think people understand what my priorities, Koshi, are because I announced a change Mm. to superannuation yesterday with the Prime Minister. So he's asking all these questions about changes that nobody is talking about, and then these end up being picked up and used by the Liberal Party in their talking points and media advertising. The ABC has been announcing the superannuation changes as a tax hike. Now, the question has to be, 
how do we get much-needed reform happening in these sort of circumstances? And it could be argued, well, the Labor Party did rule out changes to the superannuation system before the last federal election, and here they are making changes to the superannuation system. But what do you do? Do you wait three more years to take such a plan to an election campaign where it's going to be misrepresented and destroyed by an opposition and by the media, or do you make the changes that are in the national interest right now? And I'd say that you go ahead and do the reform now. And we've said on New Politics many times before, David, that what the Labor government should be doing is ignore a weak Liberal Party, you ignore a media that's got a diminished influence, and then you do what's in the national interest. And the electorate will reward you in the long term for doing this. And that's easier said than done, of course, but that's the pathway that they have to follow. And my hope is that the Labor government gets the appetite for making these types of changes Most of the people affected by these changes probably won't vote for the Labor Party anyway. There's probably popular support for these sorts of changes. And Anthony Albanese, he does have to be careful and be aware of the political consequences of all of these decisions. But if you are going to make these types of changes, this is the year that you make all of these changes. There's pretty much all of 2023 to go, all of 2024 to go before the next election. So this is the time you make these changes, you take the political heat out of all of these issues, let them settle down, and you do what's in the national interest. Exactly. He's still got political capital to burn. It's diminishing. The 11 new coal mines in Queensland aren't helping. But you're right, you ignore what the media is saying. You ignore what the opposition is saying. Basically, the opposition has lost everyone under 25 it's 80% of people under 25 don't vote Liberal Party. That's devastating. If those figures hold to when that generation is 30, 35, 40, there is no long-term future for the Liberal Party. There is just none. The Liberal Party has lost women. And a quiet, sane communications campaign saying, this is what we're doing. This is how we're doing it. I suspect that they probably have some kind of grandfather clause in it or some kind of clause that you could move some of that money out so that it's not all being hit by the tax. They could bring that in if it was that big a deal. But for 0.5% of superannuation accounts, and probably there would be Labor voters in there, but most of them would be okay with paying the tax. So there's not a vote in it for them that they haven't already got. And there's a chance for votes outside as people say, hey, they're closing inefficient tax loopholes. Before we say that it passed the pub test, I'm not sure that the term inefficient tax loophole has ever been said in any pub anywhere. (laughs) But you know what I mean. People saying this is good policy and then you spend that money wisely on infrastructure or education or health or the stuff that the voters continually say they want rather than silly defence contracts and mining subsidies and stuff, they're on a long-term winner. I'm guessing that there's a sense in which the party is still suffering the trauma of the last nine years where they were just hammered pillory to post from one non-scandal to the next and they still feel that they have to manage the media in that way. But they really haven't had to manage the media in that way since at least 2007. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music, or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can now support New Politics through Patreon.
And one issue that has been underreported in Australia is a roundtable meeting that was held by the Attorney-General, Mark Dreyfus, with representatives of news agencies and media unions, and it mainly focused on national secrecy laws and improving protections and press freedoms for journalists and people working in news gathering and political reporting, and it's not clear what the outcome here will be, and it's not entirely clear what the purpose of the roundtable discussions were anyway, but the meeting was held with representatives from news corporations, Seven West Media, Nine Media, The Usual Suspects, and of course we do have to support reforms that will lead to greater press freedom and protections for journalists. But these are important issues, but they are not the biggest issues. It's difficult to talk about press freedoms when Julian Assange is still languishing in a British jail, and that's coming up to four years, or the fact that Australia's got the least diverse media landscape in the Western world. These are the bigger issues that keep being overlooked, and and it would be better to focus on media ownership laws and creating a stronger and enforceable code of conduct for the media. It's interesting that no independent was there, and and I don't mean us necessarily, would have been nice, but in all seriousness, where was Crikey? Saturday paper, yep, the monthly, those guys, the larger independents could have helped. You know, it'd be great to have us or Independent Australia or the AIMN or Kangaroo Court, True Crime Weekly. Well, we weren't invited to the media roundtable discussion. We should have been. We've got a lot of ideas about media reform, but... With some notable exceptions, I think that journalism and political reporting in Australia is quite mediocre, Mm. and some of these reforms that we've been suggesting would make the industry a lot more professional and more worthwhile, and at least it would make it a little bit more interesting. I've said it before, a cap on media ownership, 10% of the industry, that's the most you can own. A revolving press council, you get two elections, maybe three elections, and then you're out and someone else is brought in. And so they'd have to do succession management for that. But having journalists who've known politicians for 25 and 30 years is a big problem. Perhaps editors will start thinking, well, maybe we don't put journalist X with Minister Y. We bring in somebody else. So there's that at least perception of non-bias. So I think at this meeting, it seemed to be more about the government appearing to be the friend of the media. And I don't think anyone in the media is going to argue about improving press freedoms and offering more protections to journalists. But I'd be more interested in talking to the media about truth in journalism Mm. laws and regulation, because truth in journalism in Australia seems to be an optional extra applied whenever the mainstream media feels like it. The social media bargaining code, that's also one area that needs to be looked at because that has solidified media concentration rather than improving diversity. There's also the Australian Press Council, that's close to useless or worse than useless and that needs some serious reform. But media ownership is still a problem. We've got at least one media owner who's not a fit and proper person to hold a media licence and if that can't be reformed, well, maybe a stricter and enforceable code of conduct for the media and for journalists. And I guess the question there is, well, who decides the standards, how is it enforced, and who enforces it? Again, self-regulation doesn't work. Even in the most honest and brutally fair self-regulation, it doesn't work because it can be derailed anywhere. Having completely independent press counsel for complaints made up of a couple of representative journalists, sure, you need someone in the industry because sometimes things look wrong from the outside but they're actually the right thing to do or at least the bad behavior can be explained which might mitigate some consequences you need people who consume the the media who aren't involved in the industry at all you do need people who can understand and interpret the law 
What you don't want is the usual gang of suspects who seem to get onto these boards all the time and seem to do very little. And you need a broad view. You need people of colour. You need women. You need other minorities because so often there'll be something really unfair and the mainstream board shall I say, oh, that's perfectly fair. Whereas Indigenous people raging with anger and anguish because they can see what's gone wrong here, whereas someone who hasn't had that experience can't see what's gone wrong. So you need a, a press council that represents all of Australia, not just the press or at least a press council appeals board or complaints board or whatever you want to call it, who does that. And yes, have representatives from the press on it to defend their members where their members can be defended. Absolutely. You know, you don't want these things to be witch hunts. You don't want the press to undermine it because it's not fair. But you do need people who are affected by the press who aren't necessarily members of the press. And last week we discussed whether Rupert Murdoch is a fit and proper person to hold a media licence in Australia, and no surprise, we decided that he's not. And in the United States, Rupert Murdoch has testified in a defamation case that he acknowledged that Fox News endorsed that stolen election narrative in 2020, even though Murdoch and other news executives believed that Joe Biden had actually won the election and the results were not in doubt. So despite all the lies and garbage that was presented on Fox News during that time, and this incited a lot of Republican and Trump supporters at the time and eventually resulted in the riots of the Capitol Hill in January 2021, Rupert Murdoch knew that it was all a lie, watched it all happening and didn't do anything to stop it. And it's not like Rupert Murdoch is a nobody or an innocent bystander. He's the head of the most powerful news corporation in the world. And he could have put a stop to all of this, but he didn't. And of course, Australia is a long, long way from the United States. And this defamation case won't be fully heard until April this year, but it's more evidence against a person who shouldn't be in charge of a media organisation. And this should have some ramifications for his role in the Australia media landscape. One of the mistakes of the Hawke-Keating government was to allow Murdoch to continue to own papers in Australia. That government owed him nothing, and the good press they got really wasn't worth it. They'd have got the good press from other media organisations anyway. And in fact, the government really should just fund the ABC and let it go. Now, yes, it's a private company and can have whatever opinions it likes, and that's fine. But in a market such as Australia... There's a bit more to it than that. We're not getting a lot of diverse commentary. And the thing that Australians don't seem to understand or Australian media people don't understand is that I can click on anywhere in the world just about and find better press. The American press has been tainted by Murdoch, but you still have very good papers such as the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times. You still have very good news services that give a fairly unbiased view often yeah you've got fox news and all of that but you can still find very good journalism same in england again murdoch's done his best to get all of england if you go to somewhere like new zealand where there is no murdoch canada they're trying to radicalize the right there but it's not really working because they have truth in journalism laws the radical right in canada is even more pathetic than it is here where where it gets a bit of mainstream support European news, again, much better than what you get here on the whole. Again, I don't want to disparage the journalists who do do very good work consistently here. There are a few, 
but unfortunately they're in the minority. And if we could reform the system in such a way that these voices are heard more and that more voices like this are heard, it would be the best for everybody, including themselves. I think journalism is down in the bottom 10 of most trusted professions, ranking somewhere below used car salesmen. And David, you and I are trying to get it into the top 10. That's what we're all about. And Exactly. And we do this by trying to tell the truth as we see it, using facts. And it's not that hard. So I guess we'll just have to wait and see what the next steps are for media reform and we could be waiting for some time to come and of course there have been those calls for a Royal Commission and probably more effective reforms at this stage could be made through legislation and that would certainly be quicker than a Royal Commission but one other interesting issue is that although this roundtable discussion involved the media it didn't actually involve the Minister for Communications Michelle Rowland and it's nine months into this parliamentary term and we haven't actually heard very much at all from the Minister and There was that issue about a donation received on the eve of the last election, and she has recently talked about reforming Australia Post, but that's about it. We haven't heard very much at all. And sometimes there is a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes and we don't hear about it, and the government banks up all of these decisions or announcements until it finds the best time to make the announcement. But I'm getting a sense that something in media reform needs to be announced soon or it needs to start happening soon, otherwise it's just going to be too late. (laughs) As I said, her position's untenable. It may be that she wasn't there because she just isn't credible enough as a minister. And I I don't like saying this. I didn't like saying it for the last nine years either. But when you take a payment from an industry that you're supposed to be making judgments on, again, no matter how honest and full of integrity you are, you've lost it. She needs to be taken out of the ministry and someone else bought in. It's a terrible shame, but that's the way it is. And We can't have more substandard ministers. We can't have ministers working on behalf of themselves, not the country. It's the type of thing that you can come back from, but that she wasn't there, I think, said a lot. I think that the government knows that she's not a viable minister anymore. Of course, if I was prime minister, I'd have had the Minister for Communications there listening, learning, and looking at the best reforms possible. That wasn't there either suggests, and it could be all of these things, that they didn't take it very seriously and two, that the minister lacks the credibility to be able to show up with any authority. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music, or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can now support New Politics through Patreon, Flying around waiting to die Never did quite satisfy A siren song Sugar tongue So easily undone Clever enough to know the score Beg you to stop, you say what for My dark angel Won't you drag those nails Across my soul And there was a lull in the RoboDebt Royal Commission while it had a two-week break, but it's back in action. It's been back in action for just over a week and a half. And 
This would have to be the biggest scandal ever to be ignored by the mainstream media. We're still not sure why, but there's actually a lot going on there. And the role of the former government services minister, Stuart Robert, that's been in the spotlight. And the evidence this week was that the minister was informed by the Secretary of Human Services that the robo-debt scheme was unlawful. And he responded by suggesting, well, that's just a legal opinion and that he would double down on the scheme. And the secretary, Renee Leon also testified that the top officials within the department who supported the minister's agenda were rewarded and the others who provided negative advice were punished and she was sacked after she suggested that the scheme was unlawful so I guess she was one of the people who got punished. Stuart Robert has also appeared at the commission and his behaviour was very similar to the behaviour of the former Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. But um, you're saying they're the departmental figures but you knew they they couldn't be right. I had a... Massive personal misgiving, yes, but I'm still a cabinet minister. Yeah, but it doesn't compel you to say things that you don't believe to be true, surely. It's one thing to stick to the policy and say this is how we do it and we're confident in the program, but to actually give statistics which you couldn't have believed to be accurate is another thing, isn't it? They were the numbers from the department based on the working approach to how the the program was being run. They were the accepted figures by government to use. And as a dutiful Cabinet Minister, ma'am, that's what we do. Misrepresent things to the Australian public? Uh, I wouldn't respectfully put it that way. It was dismissive, arrogant, obfuscating. But it's quite obvious that there was a push-through agenda on robo-debt from Stuart Robert and from the Liberal National Government. didn't matter if the scheme was immoral, unethical or legal. The government at the time was going to push through with it. And this is where the problem lies. You know, sometimes governments do need to be saved from themselves and sometimes it's the public that needs to be protected from the actions of a government as well. It's heartbreaking to watch the lack of duty of care. Public servants who didn't want to turn their mind to the matter, knowing it was wrong. George Pell had a very similar attitude to abused children. But people who in positions of power who are standing aside. So in the words of Edmund Burke, all evil needs is for good people to do nothing. And we see a lot of people who would tell you that they are good people doing nothing. Meanwhile, people are committing suicide. Again, there is a question as to how many, but there's been enough testimony in the Royal Commission that it's been too many. One, of course, is too many, but it's it's been more than that. The upper numbers suggest 2,000. The lack of care, the arrogance, the smug sense of entitlement, the pure entitlement of we will do this and we will get away with it, who cares if it's the right thing or not, was just heartbreaking. And that's the big issue as well, because this is almost the number one issue that we are asked about, the Robo-Debt Royal Commission, because a lot of people cannot believe how awful the scheme was and how it was ever allowed to happen in the first place. And because of this, we might be a little bit fixated on it. But this Royal Commission has been running for some time now, and all the evidence is pointing to a consistent theme, that there was indifference to suffering, there was indifference to the illegalities of the scheme, there was high-level incompetence from senior staff at Centrelink, incompetence from government ministers and incompetence from government staff as well. And there was just this mindless pursuit of this mad, quasi-religious ideological agenda. And generally, government spending in any year is between $600 and $700 billion and Robo-debt managed to recoup around $750 million over three years, or $0.75 billion. And 
And maybe if the government was going to save something like $100 or $200 billion each year implementing such a bizarre scheme, well, maybe you try it out because there's such a lot of money involved there, but it wasn't even worth the money that they were hoping to get from this overall scheme, which they had to pay back anyway. So it was obvious that it wasn't about the money. This was, this was just some ideological pursuit that was all about punishing poor people. And this probably takes us back to our points in the beginning, whereas the Liberal Party will defend the wealthy, or current members of the Liberal Party will defend the wealthy, and a scheme that may see some of their members either having to rejig their finances in such a way that they're not paying tax that should have been paid, or paying tax that they can afford. They will fight tooth and nail to preserve, whereas something that kicks into the poor, kicks into the vulnerable, kicks into the hurting, they will fight tooth and nail to make sure that it happens. And it's not as if, too, it was, oh, we're not sure if the legality of this is okay. We can try it and see what the High Court says. Every single piece of advice they got said this is illegal and will not stand up in court. At that point, you think, okay, this is bad policy. What do we do? How can we get this money back? And in fact, what nobody seemed to ask is, what is the number of people who have actually rotted the system? And that was a whole lot less, the order of 95 or 98% less than was accused. And yes, of course, the money's being paid back, but it should never have been paid in the first place. And it's the Labor government whose budget will be affected on this. And one wonders, was this the whole point, to give Labor a bomb of a billion dollars or so that they then can't use for their own? And you'd think, surely, they're not that smart, but they're pretty cunning. And I'm wondering if they thought, yep, we'll have to pay this back, but it'll be the other side, and then we can make political capital out of that. Well, you can never underestimate that. But mm. I'm still surprised that there's only been low-level interest in the Robo-Debt Royal Commission in the mainstream media. And they can't say that it's an issue that people might be sick and tired of hearing about because it just hasn't been in the news for long enough. And unlike all of those daily anti-Daniel Andrews stories and Melbourne lockdown stories that we kept on hearing about for almost all of last year and the year before, even though we live in Sydney. So that's another issue that we have to look at at some point in the future. So it's obvious that there's been a high level of negligence. I'm not too sure if there will be enough material to prosecute anyone. There should be, but that will be up to the Commission to decide. But the hearings end on March the 10th, that's next week, and the final report from the Commissioner has to be presented by April the 18th. So there might be an explosive conclusion to this Royal Commission coming up soon, and we'll be there to watch it. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music, or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can now support New Politics through Patreon. So it's also one year since Russia invaded Ukraine. It was only meant to last a few days, but it's still going on. And 
unlikely to stop for some time to come. Now, it's said that war is an extension of policies by another means, so it's probably going to continue until both sides are exhausted by the whole process and realise that there's no point in going on, and that's how most wars end. But one year on, Russia is still the big loser in all of this, and it's got similarities with other wars that they've been involved with. Afghanistan, where that was only meant to last for a couple of months, but ended up going on for 10 years before they had to retreat. There's also that internal war in Chechnya, two wars that lasted over 12 years, and they were just meant to last a couple of weeks. So the power of the Russian military might have been overplayed. It does have a massive army, but its competence and effectiveness have also been called into question. But this is primarily about the reworking of European geopolitics by Vladimir Putin, hasn't paid off so far but the bigger issue is that so many people have died the numbers range from a hundred thousand to three hundred thousand people and that includes military personnel and civilians on both sides there's also many other people that have been wounded and displaced around six million displaced people in total and as with most wars it's not the political leaders that are paying the price of this it's the civilians and soldiers that get caught up in all of this it's a tragedy It's brought up some really interesting alliances, deeply patriotic Americans supporting Vladimir Putin and Australians too. Every now and then we get emails from people telling us how Putin is doing the right thing and that Ukraine's just a uh, hotbed of Nazi sympathisers. Now, Ukraine does have military units who identify politically as Nazis, But how pervasive this is throughout all of Ukraine is certainly less certain. And for all of Zelensky's faults, he was less popular than Scott Morrison before the war. He certainly has risen to the occasion of being a wartime leader. I guess in that way, he could be compared slightly to Winston Churchill, who was a a joke till World War II started and then became, of course, considered one of Britain's greatest prime ministers. And I know in Australia, we tend not to like him because of Singapore, but I'm talking about what the British people themselves feel about him. It's hard to know what's going on in the war because the full propaganda wings of both sides have swung into great effect. So for every Ukrainian victory, there seems to be a Russian one. And Ukraine's either just about to fall or Russia's just about to retreat the whole time. And working through this is difficult to see what the truth is. And I think that would be true if if you were on the ground there too. And I think too, Russia went in hoping for a quick victory. And I suspect even a muted victory of just getting back those two disputed areas that have Russian majorities in them. But they've found themselves dug in too deep. I think it's fair to say that the Ukrainian people are very motivated and very committed to not being taken over by Russia. And there's a long, long history going back hundreds of years of tension between Ukraine and Russia that really only settled during the period of the USSR, but it simmered under the surface there. It's hard to see how either country can get out without either a decisive victory either way. And Ukraine's army is probably too small to get a decisive victory. And Russia's army seems to be in too much disarray to get a decisive victory. Or some kind of figure like Jimmy Carter. It won't be Jimmy Carter. He's just gone into a hospice and is probably not long for this world. Barack Obama would have the capability and the intelligence to do it, but he doesn't get on with Vladimir Putin at all. So he wouldn't be the unifying figure that he so often can be. I can't think of anyone offhand 
who would be able to go in and negotiate a peace settlement that both would be happy with. Well, Australia has supplied $655 million in support so far, including military hardware, and this support is likely to continue for some time. There's ongoing support from many other countries, but the bulk of the support is coming in from the US government, and that's $44 billion, and Britain is next on that list with $5 billion worth of support. So you could say that this is a proxy war for the US government against Russia. China has offered to act in the role of peacemaker and has provided a 12-point political settlement. And Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, he said that he's open for discussion on some of these points. But I'd say that the US government probably would rather see the war continue instead of China coming in to resolve these issues. But there's a whole lot of geopolitics politics involved here but unfortunately for the people of Ukraine this war might be continuing for a little while longer I can't see an end to it over the next 12 months again I'm not on the ground there so and the messaging to use that horrid term is not clear either way it's not going to end in the near future I don't think and that's a great tragedy for both Ukrainians and Russians all over the world That's it for this episode of New Politics. Thanks for listening in. And if you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time. 